0: Thank you so much, and good morning. Uh, I'm, I'm not a very emotional person, I'm not a crier, but I can feel the tears are quite close this morning. I, haven't, I don't think I've actually cried for about 15 years. So um, this morning could be that morning, and if it comes, man, it's gonna come. So um, just gonna warn you now, it's great to be with you guys. As John said, i uh, been part of Gateway for so many years and part of Alder Road particularly for so many years. Actually, can you take my phone? Thanks, catch, Way. well done, good job. Good job, we practice that at home. And um, it is just lovely to be with you this morning and to be in this building. It's my first time actually here on a Sunday, which is fantastic. And um, so delighted to see some new faces here as well. As John said, I, I just wanted to give you an update of how things are going at 502 as well. This has been a joint enterprise as a church, many years in the making, coming to the point of having two... Uh, congregations and being here in this building for you guys is such a pleasure for me to see. 502 uh, is going incredibly well. We've got a wonderful team down there. Things are going so much better than I could have ever hoped or imagined, which is all God's grace to us. So the building is completely full every Sunday. So it's absolutely amazing. We've got about 100 people in there, which is fantastic. And people are just going for it in the Lord. And it's just wonderful. Sometimes happens in these seasons. And I'd want to encourage you in this as well that when you kind of do a bit of a reboot or restart, gifts emerge amongst us. So for us at 502, it's wonderful to see some new gifts emerging amongst people and people really being confident in that. Please don't be surprised if God starts to stir stuff like that in you as well. Go for it. We are the family of God together, individual parts called together into one body. You all have a part to play. So please do feel free to do that. And um, got some amazing midweek stuff happening as well. So we run Gatehouse In the midweek, we started that in June last year, we had 76 people there on Thursday, which is amazing, and it's just been great to see some people starting to come to prayer meetings off the back of that and join us on Sundays, and so pray for salvation, pray for the baptisms as we will for you guys as well. God bless you all. As John said, uh, this is one of those Sundays that Matt and I have planned into the preaching schedule where he is preaching down there. And uh, of course, I'm preaching down here, and it's what we call a free hit Sunday, a free play Sunday. We're not in a preaching series of any sort at the moment, um, but uh, this is an opportunity. These Sundays, they come up a couple times in the year for us just to preach what's on our hearts for, uh, for you guys. So, so look out. Here comes the free hit. This is what I feel God has put on my heart for you this morning, and uh, I want to preach through a passage of Scripture, which I believe is relevant and it's timely for us as Christians in a, in a time in human history when world events just seem to be spiraling more and more out of control, and the, the headlines are becoming more and more exaggerated and doomsday-ish. And this is kind of just becoming the cultural water in which we swim in. I, I Really often, I'm sure you do as well, speak with people who are really concerned about the state of the world, the state of the economy, the threat of nuclear war, climate change, which is absolutely sure to fry us alive or freeze us or something terrible about the state of our workforce with everyone striking every five minutes. And these are very real and very present concerns for us. I understand that. And we do need to, right now, as in every generation grapple with these world and cultural and local and personal affairs. It's important that we do. It's, a, it's been wonderful to pray for Turkey and Syria this morning. And yet, I believe that as Christians, we're called to confront them and to deal with them and often to work to resolve them in such a way that communicates to the world our confidence in a God who rules over all these things and over all of history as well and holds them in the palm of his hand as he unfolds his plan for humanity and for the ongoing and eventual route that we need to live with. And that as we navigate the challenges of this world and of this life, the wars and the strikes and the pandemics and the economic uncertainties, that God's kingdom is still breaking in all the time. It's bringing hope to hopeless situations. It's bringing light into dark places, working through even the most catastrophic things that we're facing to bring about his plan to redeem humanity and towards a future goal where Jesus and his people, us, emerge victorious over every empire and every kingdom and every threat and every economic crisis and tears and pains and death and teacher strikes and climate change will be dealt with forevermore. That's the confidence we need to live in. And so with my, with my free hit today, I want to I impart a message that's on my heart for you, which I'm hoping that in these uncertain times, in our fragile lives as well, will put steel in your bones and cause faith to rise up for what God is doing in the world, and in you, and through every single event, every headline, every crisis that we face. Is that okay? Great. This phrase behind me, the spring of hope, actually comes from the opening paragraph of a very famous work of literature. The phrase is, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. Anyone know where that's from? Probably Narnia is incorrect, Matthew. No? Okay. I'm so glad I was going to bring some chocolate to throw out to the winner, but there is no winner, so... This is um, the opening, uh, it's from the opening paragraph of uh, the Charles Dickens classic, A Tale of Two Cities. Aha, uh-huh, there you go. Of course it is. Yeah, there you go. Carlos, you knew that. Of course you knew that. You're a literate man. Let me read you the, uh, the whole opening paragraph. And uh, as I do, think about the age... And the world in which we now live. Whenever I read these words, it reminds me of the sorts of things that I believe we hear every morning on the news cycle. Here we go. It says, "It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair." We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. It's really, um, if you just kind of sit and meditate on those words long enough, they're really quite challenging. If you've never read the book, A Tale of Two Cities, it's a a historical novel set uh, around about the time of the lead-up to the French Revolution in the mid to late 1700s. And it tells a story of a French doctor who's imprisoned in the Bastille. And he's observing a culture in France that's literally crumbling to pieces. People are revolting and rising up in the streets. There's teacher strikes, I'm sure, and all that sort of stuff. And the overthrow of convention and law and order, and specifically the opposition to the place of the church in society as well, and the literal removal of an upper class in that society through Madame la Guillotine. For an 18th century Parisian, the world is literally turned on its head. It's upside down. And in the novel, this contrasts with an age of innovation and hope in London, which is where the doctor's trying to get to. That's the kind of the, the premise of the story. This, this period in French history is called the Reign of Terror. Can you imagine living in the Reign of Terror? I feel sometimes that this world, our our current cultural moments. What the headlines want us to believe is that we live in a reign of terror. Let me uh, read you a few news stories of our own from the past few months. These are from fairly major um, news outlets. With a near inevitable global recession sparked by a lengthening war in Europe's frozen east, an energy crisis coupled with soaring inflation, COVID-19 finally running rampant in China, Predictions for 2023 are grim. From last week, house prices fall for the fifth month in a row, the UK to be the only major economy to shrink in 2023. Interest interest rates rise again as Britain prepares for two years of pain. You've never had it so bad, apparently. There is no cause, no cause for optimism about broken Britain. How about this one? The climate disaster is here! Earth is becoming unlivable. The Secretary General of the United Nations says, if we don't act now, we're on a catastrophic path to a hellish future. A leading newspaper asks, what if permafrost melting or flooding cuts off critical roads used by supply chains? What if storms knock out the world's leading computer chip factory? What happens once half the world is exposed to disease-carrying mosquitoes? What if, what if, what if? How about this one from the professor of race, culture, and faith at Goldsmiths University in London? Britain should prepare for a non-religious future. The church continues to show itself as radically out of step. Christianity is fading fast. These are the headlines. This is what we're living with. This is what we're living under at the moment. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the season of despair. We live in an age of unprecedented panic and doomsdayism and conspiracy. Just watch and listen to the news tonight. It makes it easy to believe that everything is a conspiracy and we are headed for certain self-extermination, that the COVID vaccines were all part of a government ploy to control the populace, that QAnon is taking over the world, that the US are building bioweapons on Russia's border, used as a justification for war in the Ukraine. These are all very real and current headlines. And yet, we are meant to be a light to the world, a beacon of hope. Our leader is the Prince of Peace. How do we hold on to that reality for our own selves and at the same time broadcast our message of hope into a world that just seems to want to talk itself into panicked oblivion. I want us to um, look at a couple of passages of Scripture in the book of Isaiah. We're going to pick out a few verses in chapter 8. and I'm going to try and give you some historical context for what's happening in this passage as an encouragement and a reminder for us to hope in an age of despair this morning let's uh, let's read this together grab a bible of course if you want but words come up on the screen this is Isaiah 8 verse 11 to 14 it says this is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me warning me not to follow the way of this people do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy do not fear what they fear and do not dread it Why? Because the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Good news. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. It's like us, the church. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Okay, let's uh, let's look at a couple of things that this passage instructs us uh, about how to negotiate life as followers of Christ and bringers of hope in a world that is gaining pace in exactly the other direction. And as we as we consider this, I want you to think about the big things that are being broadcast into our living rooms from the distant borders of the Ukraine or tragically Turkey and Syria at the moment as well, but I also want you to think about events in your own life that would cause you to stumble or grow weary. Or weak. I think the first thing this passage instructs us to do is to fear the right thing. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. To give you some um, historical context, these words were written in about 850 and the Holy Land is divided into two parts, you can see on the map. You've got the Northern Kingdom, which is Israel, and the Southern Kingdom, which is Judah. And as was common in those days, as it is now, nations would often seek coalitions for all sorts of economic and political uh, and, um, and, and defense reasons. And, and this would be standard global practice, except God has always spoken to his people and told them to remain distinct, separate, set apart. That's what the word holy actually means, set apart. That's why he tells the Israelites how they are to dress and uh, cut their hair and who they're supposed to marry and not to marry. Because to the surrounding nations and cultures, they are to be distinct. They are to be recognizable as the people of God. Middle Eastern people, of course, but different to the idol-worshipping, child-sacrificing nations that surround them. Be holy, therefore, as I am holy, he tells them. And especially important in that context is the fact that God tells his people not, therefore, to form coalitions and covenants with other nations for the purpose of security, because he will be their security Not Pharaoh, not Nebuchadnezzar or any other military leader. But God himself will be, as he calls himself, the helper of Israel. Now, at this time, across the globe into Asia, the mighty nation of Assyria are growing growing. And they're marching, and they're swallowing up little nations like Judah. Assyria is not a nation to be messed with. They are a war machine, the likes of which the world has never seen before. Their their capital is Nineveh, which is where Jonah was sent. And these guys are bloodthirsty, and they're power-crazed, and they're on the move, and they're heading towards Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, where Isaiah is serving as a prophet to God's people and speaking these words... And at the same time, the king, a guy called Ahaz, he's a kind of a wheeler-dealer character, and he's, he's courting coalitions with other nations and making plans to protect his kingdom against the sternest advice of Isaiah, who repeatedly warns him not to mess with the other nations, but to trust and obey God and to obey his command wholeheartedly and to rely on him alone for protection. Now, in a culture like this, advancing enemies, political wranglings, opposition to the purposes and the people of God, there is only ever going to be a rise in fear and conspiracy. That's what we see today. Whether those Assyrian armies come to us in the form of pandemics or energy bills or union strikes or interest rate rises or the threat of nuclear war, whatever it is, our culture, like those ancient Israelites, are steeped in a culture of fear and conspiracy and hopelessness. The, um, the evangelist Glenn Scrivener says this brilliantly. If you walk away from light and life and love, where else is there to go but death and darkness and disconnection? And death and darkness and disconnection are obviously not desirable things. So they lead us to create structures and systems and to succumb to emotions that are more fueled by panic and suspicion than by faith and trust in God and in every word that proceeds from his mouth. The the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, the ISD, is a global think tank whose aim is to analyze the link between extremism and disinformation. They are essentially working to find sources of, should we say, less than accurate news and draw the link between that and various forms of conspiracy that people cook up that uh, ends up promoting extremism. I don't know if you noticed uh, in the news a few weeks back, the UK census released some stats that showed that Christianity was on the decrease in our nation. Our faith was doomed. There is obviously much you could say to argue this data. That's for another day. But the remarkable thing is that the ISD picked up within hours of this announcement an uptick in public public extremist language about how the UK was being overrun by cultures and religions from outside the UK and that something should be done about this. That's, That's how extremism starts. It's the weaponization of disinformation. Panic that leads to conspiracy. This is how fascism started. Those people over there are a threat to our peace and security over here, and so therefore they're now our enemy. That's exactly the narrative that Putin has been using to justify the invasion of the Ukraine. It's the kind of language and logic that Donald Trump used to justify the January the 6th storming of the capital in the US. QAnon are out to get us. The liberals are out to get us. It's all conspiracy based on disinformation rooted in a desire to protect ourselves at all costs, and then to find others to join us in that cause. Or to put it back in biblical terms, to make alliances based on fear with those we shouldn't, instead of trusting in God and knowing that God is at work in the world and at work in your life and always is and always will be doing something in the world to bring about his plan for redemption and his plan to make you more like his son. Don't fear what they fear and don't call what they call conspiracy. A leading academic from King's College in London tells us that Christianity has deeply offended people's moral sensibility and that the church has failed dramatically as a moral authority. As a result... We can expect to see, she predicts, listen up, an increasing fascination with magic, with fairy belief, with ghosts, with omens, with souls in the afterlife, whatever that means, alongside a decline in religion. Fairy belief, omens, magic, that's what she predicts, and that's not surprising in a world that is terrified and sees fear and conspiracy wherever it looks and desperately needs something, anything. Anything. To save them. Listen again to what Isaiah says. In a similar culture, nearly 3,000 years ago, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. People of God, we are to fear, but we are not to fear what the world fears. The key to not fearing in this fearful world is to have a right fear of God. And for the purpose of this message, you can translate fear of God like this. Absolute reverence, awe, astonishment, trust, belief, and obedience in his sovereign, perfect, unchanging plan to save you and to redeem all of creation. We need to pray for a steely, unyielding, unbending, absolute trust in the God of the nations, the ruler of history, the one who Isaiah, as he's writing and prophesying, later goes on to describe like this. This is from Isaiah 40. Surely to him, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Isaiah 40 is um, it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. I don't know why I always say this when I think about Isaiah 40, but I really recommend that you open it up and just walk around in your living room and kind of recite it out loud to yourself. I once did that over on the, uh, the sand dunes on Knoll Beach. Man, I am still like a crazy person. But boy, did it speak to me. When you speak those words out loud and get them into you, and boy, does it help faith to rise up in the face of fear and conspiracy of any sort in your life. With, um, with relevance to all that I've talked about so far this morning, uh, here's how Isaiah 40 goes. I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to pick out every verse, but I just want to give you the idea of the flow of this chapter. This is what we need to believe today as we shun the fear of the world and place a reverent fear in the plans and the purposes of our mighty God. Listen carefully, Christians. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Your sin has been paid for. Prepare the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain, every pandemic, every union strike, every threat of nuclear war shall be laid low, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. Preparing a way in the desert for the glory of our Lord to come, because your sins have been paid for. This is 850 years before Jesus came. It goes on, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. We are not to fear the world exploding because of pandemics or climate change or someone accidentally pressing a big red button somewhere. Of course, we need to respond wisely and responsibly to all these very real issues. We need to pray and act into these situations and particularly for war-torn places and disaster-stricken places. We live in a fallen world, but far above these things, we are to fear an awesome God who is everlasting, the creator of the whole earth. Isaiah 40 goes on to speak to us as individuals. Listen to this. If you're going through a tough season or if you're tempted to despair, He gives strength to the weary, and he increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men will stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord, that's us, will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. People of God, our God, rules and reigns in heaven this morning over all nations and empires and kingdoms and situations and circumstances, both at a socio-political level and in the very minute details of your life. And he says to you, comfort my people. I will sustain you in an age of anxiety. Fear only God. The second thing is what this verse refers to, the stone of offense. Let's go back to uh, Isaiah 8. Verse 14 says this. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Jesus in Scripture is sometimes referred to as the stone of offense or or the rock of stumbling. And that's from this verse. Why is that? Thinking again about the uh, historical context here, this mighty advancing army coming against Judah and threatening total extermination, you can understand the, the temptation to form unholy alliances or to appease the prevailing culture, some of the sorts of pressures we might be feeling now. But God gives Ahaz and his people this simple choice For those who love me, who fear me, who trust me, I will be for you a holy place. In other words, Assyria, Egypt, mighty military powers, they won't be your sanctuary. The culture won't be your sanctuary. I will be your sanctuary. In that sense, I'm a rock, a stone that cannot and will not be moved. All my ways are thought through, pre planned, predetermined, and good. And if you cling to me, you'll be safe. You can either cling to the rock. Or you can be crushed by it and trip over it. In the Gospels, Jesus himself, referring to this prophecy of Isaiah, teaches the chief priests that he is the stone that the builders have rejected, but that now he has become the cornerstone, the most important stone in the building. In uh, building technology, a cornerstone is defined like this. It's the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. All the other stones will be set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. Jesus was just brilliant at drawing out real-life illustrations to make deeply theological points. He is saying that as we build, as the church grows, as we join together as Christians in building and bringing the kingdom, that he will be the one on whom every other stone is built, us supported oriented finds its position without the cornerstone the integrity of the entire structure is at risk and all the other stones are askew that's what happens to a world without a cornerstone without a rock on which to stand another part of isaiah chapter 44 it says this do not tremble do not be afraid did i not proclaim this and foretell it long ago you are my witnesses, gateway. Is there any other God beside me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. There is nowhere you can run to find a rock to cling to that is like our God. Our God is a rock. Our Savior Jesus is a rock upon whom every other rock stands and upon whom, instead of fearing, we can place all of our confidence. And nothing will thwart his plans or weaken his ability. That's why Jesus said that the stone the builders have rejected has now become the cornerstone, the most important stone. Think again about the cross. That's the ultimate rejection of the rock. And yet through this very act of rejection, he becomes the rock of our salvation. And that means that for those who don't fear God, for those who say, thanks, but no thanks there is no rock upon which they can build any firm structure in their life So, so what do you build on? magic, omens, fairy belief anything that will give any sense and meaning to your short and terrifying existence before the nuclear bomb goes off So cling on tightly to the conspiracy and believe what the papers tell you and live for today and live for number one and do whatever it is that's going to make you happy and whatever it is that will help you to salvage some meaning from today because tomorrow we die. But this rock, this stone of offense, this Jesus will cause offense in people precisely because it points out The one thing that we don't naturally want to believe in all of this, that we can't save ourselves, that magic and omens and fairy belief won't save us, and to think that you can go it alone in the face of oh so many problems and crises and existential threats is a highway to fear. And unchecked fear, done apart from God and his people, is a highway to constructing stuff to make it feel all right. Right? And so we get magic, we get omens, we get fairies, we get them out there who are going to come and get us in here. So we better bandy together all of our unholy alliances and make what we can out of what we've got before our worst fears are realized and it all comes crashing down around us. And we're exposed as the meaningless lumps of flesh that we are in a purposeless world. But thank God, that's, that's not how it goes for those of us who've been rescued from meaninglessness and fear. Because the stone caused offense. Because the stone was rejected. Because Jesus so loves you totally. In spite of your fears, your disbelief, your rejection of him, your desire to go your own way. In spite of all of that, he went to the cross and died for you. And took away all those filthy rags, and has clothed you with clean, white robes, such that now not only does he continually love you and talk to the Father about you, but when God the Father looks on you, he doesn't see sin and rebellion and disobedience anymore. He, his attitude towards you is now one of ongoing forgiveness and mercy and love and acceptance. That's what's on offer, life in Jesus, and instead of filth and stain, all he sees when he looks at you now is the perfection of Christ. That's what theologians call imputed righteousness, the concept that Jesus' perfection and his payment for your sins is now somehow given to you, that his righteousness, his, his rightness is now our rightness. We are right with God, and nothing will ever, ever change that. In a fearful, hopeless world, that message is dynamite. That all of your fears, all of your brokenness, all of your insecurities, every wrong that you've ever done, everything that's ever been done against you can be forgiven and put right. And further to that, you can be made right with God. And that through it all, every chaos and misdeed, every major global catastrophe, and through every wound and crisis in your own life, that God is doing something to bring about goodness for those who love him and to shape us to becoming like Jesus. It says this in Romans eight twenty-eight and 29, and to unfold and bring about his purposes for humanity, that your life is specifically and intimately purposed by God, And of infinite value, and that in the grand scheme, you are held and saved by grace and held in the rock-solid protective embrace of our God, who will hold you and see you and bless you and love you all through this life and into eternity, which, by the way, he's also purposed for you. There is no other message like that in our culture. There is no other message like that in humanity. He is the rock upon which you will repeatedly stumble and fall and realize just how broken things are, or He is the rock upon which you can cling and find sanctuary, a refuge. That's the choice. In a hopeless, faithless, fearful world, be encouraged. Christ is our hope, and He's the hope for all humanity. Time and time again in Scripture, we're told, don't fear. Don't be afraid. This passage is just one of those many times. That's not meant to be a condemning warning, it's an invitation. You, child, need not fear. Despite what you actually feel, and despite what's going on in the world, and despite perhaps what you're facing, and despite what you've done or what has been done to you, don't be afraid. God is with you. He will be your refuge. Jesus has come. He has forgiven your sins. He's wiped clean your slate. He has clothed you in clean clothes. He has wiped your tears away. He has gone to the cross. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended to heavens. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He is praying for you even now. And he rules over all things at all times. And he neither slumbers nor sleeps comforts my people he says to you fear not what the world fears fear god reverence god trust god be awestruck at his son be astonished at what he has done for you that that's what it means to fear god saint augustine 1500 years ago a man who had looked everywhere and done everything to try and make sense of life said that i have read many Beautiful things in Plato and Cicero, the wisest men of the day, but never in either. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, all who are weary, all who labor, all who fear the weight of the troubles of this world and of this life, all who fear, all who are hard pressed by the struggles of this world and of this life. There is good news. You needn't fear. Come to Jesus. Even today. Find rest for your souls. Let me pray for us. Would you join me and stand? King Jesus, I do thank you so much that in a world that seems like it's out of control, spiraling, chaotic, sometimes in our own lives, we feel the personal Uh, kind of impact of that, of things that we've done, of things that have been done to us. Thank you that the rock-solid reality is that you are the rock upon which we can stand and build, that you have been to the cross, you have made it all right for us, that eternity has been purposed for us, that you've ascended the clouds, you've risen up above every empire and nation, above every king, above every nuclear threat, above every pandemic. You are seated above it all at the right hand of the Father, even now praying for us, commending us to him, loving us, protecting us, working all things together for our good and for your glory. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that you would just instill by the power of the Spirit a strength in us, a power in us to recognize that and to stand firm on all that you are and all that you've done. In Jesus' name. Amen.